right now we're so polarized. So let's so blaming each other instead of solving problems, attacking each other instead of finding some common ground for the common good. Uh, we're going to have a different kind of politics. And I would say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Go deeper in the faith that you have and make that very public in your uh, your political life. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and joining us today is Jim Wallace, president of Sojourners, a Christian social justice organization, and a former spiritual advisor to both President Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Jim, it's an honor to speak with you. Blessing for me, Sahil. Great to talk to you again. I actually want to start by defining I think there's a lot of confusion, so I want to start by defining what is an evangelical. Well, there ought to be a lot of confusion, given how that term is being used, and it's uh, almost embarrassing now when people refer to you as an evangelical because they think, does he think this? Does he think that? What does he think? Uh, I'm going to go back to the definition that Jesus gave it in his first talk, his first gig, his first uh mission statement, if you will, was in Nazareth. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, then release the captives, set the oppressed free. And the word for good news there in Greek is evangel, evangel, from which we get the word evangelical and evangelist. Now, do you think, do your listeners think that the word evangelical these days really means quickly good news to the poor? Not so much. (laughs) The idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ is either good news to the poor and the vulnerable and the marginal, or it's not. And if it is not, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be the gospel of white Americans, uh, white middle class uh, people, but it's not the gospel of Jesus. So the question here is, let's take the phrase white evangelical. Well, black evangelicals, of whom there are many, and Hispanic and Asian American evangelicals have very different views on many things than evangelicals. So I would say in the phrase white evangelical, the operative word is not evangelical. The operative word is white. And that's why we have a problem. So to go off that, in the previous election, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That was a record number, as you know. That was more white evangelicals that voted for George W. Bush, and I believe Bush was a white evangelical. And then, as you mentioned, that 67% of evangelicals of color supported Hillary Clinton. So you've been noted for saying white evangelicals acted more white than they did evangelical. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. (laughs) In a phone call after the election, for example, uh, on the phone call that I convened, there were evangelical leaders, um, and they were white evangelicals, black evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, And the white evangelical leaders said, our people didn't vote for Donald Trump because of his racial bigotry, but for other reasons, like abortion, same-sex marriage, and so on. And a black evangelical woman said right there in the call, so I guess racism and racial bigotry isn't a deal-breaker for you and your constituency. Is that right? That's the question. And there was no answer to it. So uh, racism, racial bigotry, is a deal breaker for the gospel. Is it a deal breaker for white evangelicals? Generally, no. Did you feel that there were some situations where many white evangelicals felt that they had to pick a lesser of two evils or they pick some things, like abortion was a deal breaker for them and the fact that they could the fact that they could get a nominee on the court that would overturn abortion 
would be a one that pushed them towards that? Or was it the color element, the skin color element? Yeah, that's a really good question. Let me try and, and answer it in the depth of your question, which is uh, they made this into a binary choice, Trump versus Hillary. So any criticism of Trump, even since the election, they say, well, should I have voted for Hillary? Uh, and they would raise all kinds of things about Hillary and about uh, particularly issues like abortion. Now, let me, let me uh, challenge both sides here. My view, and the view of even many inside the Democratic Party, is that the left has taken quite an extreme position on abortion. And most of the country would like to reduce abortion in this country without criminalizing what is often a tragic and desperate choice. But the left goes to the right, left very extreme, and the right goes to the right. And the Democrats have been really controlled by an extreme view. And Hillary took, I think, quite an extreme view, which I don't even think she holds. And even her husband, Bill Clinton, says that's why she lost Pennsylvania. So there were issues there. There were issues on, on, on what is for some uh, a, a significant uh, central pro-life issue. But my view on this is more like Catholic Cardinal Bernard of Chicago, who was with us for a long time, who talked about a consistent ethic of life where, where abortion is a life issue, and so is poverty. So is what happens to children of color after they're born. Being pro-birth isn't sufficiently pro-life. Nuclear weapons, uh, capital punishment, our pro-life issues, a consistent ethic of life takes on all those questions. And the country, I think, wants to, really does want to reduce abortion uh, by, by reducing unwanted pregnancies and supporting vulnerable women with health care and nutrition, which does reduce the abortion rate. Democrats won't say that, and they should. So that's part of the issue. However, however, uh, after the election, I said this election was all about race, and I was criticized for that by many people uh, on both sides of the aisle. But the data shows that, that, yes, there were some voters who had a kind of a single life issue on abortion. Uh, there were Catholic or evangelical. There were some. But the data shows most of the white Christians who voted for Donald Trump voted for Donald Trump because of his, his stance against immigrants, his support for guns. In other words, the racial, racialized argument worked for white evangelicals, not black evangelicals or Hispanic, but white evangelicals. So we have a significant problem in this country uh, I, my last book was called America's Original Sin. And that's not just a problem in the country. It's a problem in the church. And sin, in my tr tradition, in fact, in Jewish and Islamic traditions too, sin requires repentance. And we have yet to repent of that original sin. Uh, repentance is not just feeling guilty or sorry. It means, the word means in all of our traditions, turning around and going in a whole new direction on things like mass incarceration, racialized, uh, racialized policing, uh, racialized education, racialized economy. Those are facts that Christians, regardless of their race, should oppose in the name of the, of the Jesus who said, he's come to bring good news. One of the things I found interesting was evangelicals are typically noted for being value voters, and they've often said in many elections that the morality of a candidate matters to them a lot. And I believe polls in the past have shown about like twenty, around 20% 20 or so, 25% or so, evangelicals said the morality of a candidate doesn't matter. But it jumped up significantly to about 70%, I think, in this election. How do you see this shift playing out in the future? When, when Bill Clinton was president, there were polls taken among evangelicals. And 70%, you're right about these stats, 70% said then, 70% of evangelicals said that morality, personal morality does matter for a president. And I actually agreed with that. And so I was one of those uh, who voted for Bill Clinton, but really found his personal behavior 
uh, objectionable. And I think it does matter uh, whether one uh, cheats on your spouse, for example. I think it does matter. Now, however, the polls have reversed. In the Donald Trump era, 70% of evangelicals, white evangelicals, say, no, it doesn't matter. Only 30% say it does. They've reversed on Clinton and Trump. Uh, I think it does still matter. And I want to say that there were evangelical leaders back in the campaign and the election who did turn against because because of his what they would call his amorality. I got a call from a leading evangelical during the campaign who said, Jim, you know how I feel about abortion, how strongly I feel, how much I want a different Supreme Court, how much I feel what I strongly feel about marriage, being between a man and a woman. You know how I feel. I said, yes, I do. And he said, I, I, but I can't vote for someone who is, and here's what he said, who is intellectually incompetent. Now, he didn't say not savvy, street smart, but intellectually incompetent. Two, is amoral, amoral, not immoral, amoral in his personal and public life. Three, has the maturity of an adolescent teenage boy. Now, with that, I kind of disagree because I have two adolescent teenage boys who are both more and more mature than Donald Trump. But finally, he said, and somebody who's a racial bigot. I can't do do that. And he wouldn't vote for Donald Trump. Donald Trump, uh, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptists, was against Donald Trump. He didn't vote for Hillary, but he did not vote for Donald Trump. And he almost lost a job because of that. He shook conscience. So there were evangelicals, white evangelicals, who voted in conscience. Now, we've had a shooting in New Zealand. We've had uh, a young white supremacist who killed, uh, murdered 50 Muslims, uh, injured 50 more, and who cited Dylan Roof, who killed nine African Americans while they were also at worship, as the Muslims were, in their church Mother Emanuel in Charleston. He also cited Donald Trump. Now, I've heard no one say that Donald Trump is personally responsible for the New Zealand killings. But both sides, people on both sides of the aisle say that words matter. Language matters. Rhetoric matters. And Donald Trump is an evangelist for white nationalism. Let me say it again. Donald Trump President of the United States is an evangelist for white nationalism and the white supremacy underneath that. He's acknowledged around the world for that, and that should be a deal breaker for Christians, no matter who they are. So this is not just differences in size of government, uh, Republican, Democrat, not differences on uh, immigration policy, but to demonize immigrants to lie about immigrants, to have a wall that won't do any of the things he says the wall will do, but is literally a monument to white nationalism, keeping immigrants of color out of this country while he says he prefers immigrants from Norway. This is racism. And now we know, maybe back when the election happened, people didn't like Hillary, thought Trump might be you know, somebody would fight for them. Now we know Donald Trump has proven to be uh, a spokesperson, uh, an ideologue, an evangelist for white nationalism and the white supremacy underneath it. That is now, should be a deal breaker for Christians, in my view. Speaking of language, often in his speeches, Trump, you know, he mentioned he would give white evangelicals, quote, their power back if they voted for him. Do you see this happening you know, in 2020, and how do you, what do you make of this generally when it happened in 2016? Power is the word there. Sahil, you're right on the key topic. This is a Faustian bargain for power that white evangelicals have made, a Faustian bargain for power. They're taking power and putting their values aside, even their values on marriage and infidelity and and lying and all the rest because of the power they feel like Donald Trump is giving to them over their issues. So indeed, this is a Faustian bargain for power. It's like the bargain 
that many wealthy people are making in this country, uh, wealthy corporate elites who maybe don't like Trump's uh, style or his tweets or his, uh, his, his language, but he's lowering their taxes. As he told them at Mar-a-Lago, I'm making you people richer. As he's making them richer, they're going to over overlook his behavior and support him because he's making them richer. So some white evangelical leaders, the evangelical right, uh, they are overlooking Donald Trump's amorality, overlooking his racism, his, his attacking the strangers, the immigrants Jesus told us to protect in order to get their political power, and it's wrong. Speaking about material prosperity, one of the things that's almost gripped the imaginations of some white evangelicals is the prosperity gospels, right? Where the idea of wealth is associated with God's blessing. Do you think this also has some tie-in and this played a role in the 2016 election? Uh, let me be as, as clear as I can be about the prosperity gospel. Uh, the prosperity gospel uh, is American. It's coming from an affluent country. And the prosperity gospel, as you just described it, is literally a biblical heresy. It's a heresy. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible has 2,000 verses, 2,000 verses on the poor in the Bible. I taught this to my Georgetown class uh, here in Washington, D.C. just last week. Uh, a class is called Faith, Race, and Public Life. And, and there, when we were in seminary a long time ago, uh, a number of us, we took an old Bible and found every single verse in that Bible on poverty, on the poor, the vulnerable, uh, on wealth and poverty, rich and poor. And there were 2,000 verses. It was the second, second most prominent theme in the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. Idolatry was first. In the New Testament, one of every 10 verses was about the poor. In the Synoptic Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it was one of every seven. And in Luke's Gospel, it was one of every five. I did not name my first son after Luke Skywalker. <laughs> so so uh, when we found those verses, we took a pair of scissors and the seminarian who did that is still with us at Sojourners. And we cut out of the Bible every single reference to the poor. Just cut it right out. So they're all over the floor. All the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, let justice roll down like waters. Isaiah, is this not the fast I choose to bring the poor into your home? Uh, the Beatitudes were gone. Uh, Matthew 25, the text <clears throat> that brought me back to Christ as a movement activist, as a young person, uh, as you've done to the least of these, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger. Uh, it was me. As you've done to them, you've done to me. That was all on the floor, all on the floor. So I take that Bible out with me to preach in my younger days, and I would hold it up and I would say, this is, brothers and sisters in the American church, this is the American Bible. It's full of holes. Holy Bible, but not of what we think of when we say that. Full of holes from all we've taken out or ignored. Let's all get our Bibles and start cutting. So we're talking about not just politics here. We're talking about restoring the Word of God. Restoring the Word of God uh, in our Bibles, in our lives, in our, our public life, our private lives, our personal lives. So that's what's at stake here. 2,000 verses in the Bible about the poor. How we treat the poor is is one of the ways we worship God, period. So the prosperity gospel, rewarding the rich and so on, is simply a biblical heresy. It's not true. And that has infiltrated, infiltrated white churches. And sadly, it's infiltrated now black churches in America. Black pastors will tell you that. It's infiltrated lots of places. And the prosperity gospel is an American affluent gospel, but the prosperity gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. I'm, I'm being blunt here. How do you see this? Where do you see the prosperity gospels going in 2020 and near the future? Well, the great news is that the church around the world, 
the epicenter of, of Christianity is no longer in Europe or America. <laughs> it's in the South, uh, Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, particularly in Africa, the epicenter now is there. And those churches uh, are, are, are growing and uh, increasing while churches in the West are declining. White churches are declining while churches of color are growing. And those churches often... Pentecostal, in fact, and evangelical, uh, are committed uh, to the poor because their congregations are poor. They understand, like black churches in this country here, I got thrown out of my little white evangelical church in Detroit as a 15-year-old kid because I was raising questions that want to answer. How come we live the way we do in white Detroit? And from what I'm hearing on the news and reading in the newspapers, Black Detroit seems very different, and there are black churches. I've never, we've never heard of them or seen them. Uh, they knew about us, but we didn't know about them. So I got kicked out of my little white church as a teenage kid for going into the city, and I got taken in by black churches. So that was the beginning of the rest of my life because I've always said, um, you know, um, uh, my my your worldview changes when you meet people you were never supposed to meet and go to places you were never supposed to be. That's what changed your world. That's what changed my world. So the black church was the most holistic uh, gospel in this country. And now around the world, the church is rising up. And this is not a prosperity gospel movement. This is a, this is a, this is a movement to serve the poor in Jesus' name. You, you mentioned tax breaks. And I want to get your thoughts on the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits preachers and churches from actually engaging directly in preaching politics from the pulpit. Right now, they get to, I believe they get to keep their tax breaks from actually staying away from political activism. And no one has thought of actually removing this requirement until now. Well, uh, let me, let me, uh, that's a very important question, Sahil. I really appreciate that. I believe in the separation of church and state. That doesn't mean I believe in the segregation of, 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 uh, of morality from public life. So churches, if they preach the gospel in relation to the poor, uh, to racial bigotry, to uh, welcoming the stranger, the immigrant, uh, that will be perceived politically. Uh, the politics of Jesus, if you will. Uh, Dr. King was perceived politically. Uh, he was preaching about racial justice. So, but that doesn't mean partisan. It doesn't mean endorsing candidates or all that. So I think those, those, uh, the framework now of asking churches to engage in public life, which I do all the time, to speak the gospel into the public arena. King did that always with uh, Jeremiah and Jesus in one hand and uh, his newspaper or constitution in the other. So that's good. That's fine. But I think uh, trying to create partisan enclaves out of churches is wrong from the right or the left. And we shouldn't do that. We should be independent. King said, King said, well, the, the, the church is not meant to be uh, the master of the state or the servant of the state. The church and now he would say mosques and synagogues, is meant to be the conscience of the state. That's what we should be in public life. And finally, how do you see things playing out in the 2020 elections with regards to white evangelicals and evangelicals in general? You know, uh, there's, a, there's a really, everywhere I go around the country, <laughs> I'm still doing uh, book events for America's Original Sin two and a half years after it came out. People want that all the time. Uh, and and what I'm finding is is audiences, crowds of people that are very multiracial, that are very multi generational in particular, and that are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and people who aren't sure about faith at all. Some are called the nuns. You know, they check none of them their affiliation, and and they all want, they all think diversity, our rich diversity in this country, is a blessing and not a threat. And, and I go home from those meetings, packed out meetings, feeling really encouraged. And then I turn on the TV news in my whole hotel room, and it's the narrative that we all see every day. And that's very discouraging. So there's a new generation rising 
it is it is multiracial, multi-generational, multi-faith that is is wanting to to build a bridge to a new America and a different kind of world. So I think uh, that new generational uh, voice and spirit is rising. Uh, I see a lot of young white evangelicals who young ones who want to work with black and brown evangelicals who 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 think homophobia and who think Islamophobia are both wrong, and they don't want to do that. Uh, so, so there's a hopeful new spirit rising up in this country and around the world. How that relates to elections, uh, we, we will have to see. But I think we're looking uh, for uh, candidates who will speak to the issues that we see Jesus talking about. Jesus asked questions, and he prompted questions like, who is my neighbor? That's at the heart of our political discourse now. Who is my neighbor? Who do you treat like a neighbor? What is truth? Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. But autocrats want to make you think there is no truth. Like Pilate said, oh, what is truth? He was losing a debate with Jesus. And what is truth? That's what Donald Trump says. Oh, what is truth? There's no truth. Fake news. Well, uh, who is the greatest? That's a power question. Um, uh, what, who, where is the Im image of God? The image of God uh, is in every one of us. And we are suppressing the vote of someone because of their color, which is what voter suppression is. We are suppressing the image of God. This is a theological issue, not just a political one. So I want to see the image of God raised up. I want to see who is my neighbor. The neighbor is the one who's different than you. And even Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your neighbors and your, and your enemies, no exceptions. Huh. So if we raise up the questions of Jesus, if you're a Christian like I am, or the questions that come from our faith, uh, we're going to have a different kind of politics. And I would say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Go deeper in the faith that you have and make that very public in your uh, your political life. Talking about faith, I want to. There was a study done by Canadian authors on theology matters. I'm sure you've read it. And then one of the phenomenon we're seeing in America, as we talked about earlier, is this growing Protestant congregations. So David Miller Haskell was the lead author for Theology Matters, and in a Global and Mail article, he states, "Quote." From a near even mix of growing and declining church attendees and their clergy, we found that conservative religious doctrine is a key driver for church growth in mainline Protestant congregations. We've also found that pastors of the growing churches were on average about a decade younger than those that were declining. Other researchers have made similar observations. Martha Grace Reese has shown younger pastors had greater theological conservatism. In another paper they talk about our research contributes to a large body of evidence that churches who stick to traditional beliefs can grow and thrive even in today's world. So what I'm trying to get here at is what, what I read from this study is providing intellectually satisfying answers and clarity, even if they're based on traditional beliefs, seems to be a deep-seated need for individuals. What works is clarity. What do you make of these studies? Well, um, I think we have to, we have to um, unpack what we mean by conservative and liberal here. For example, um, uh, theologically, uh, to believe in the authority of the scriptures, uh, to take the Bible very seriously, and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord are thought to be conservative. Well, I believe those things. And that's what makes my, my politics uh, usually more more radical in terms of defense of the poor, uh, of the planet, the environment, um, of the other, the stranger, than most political liberals or conservatives. So I think you've got people who are wanting to go back to Jesus. So we have this whole movement now, and your listeners could go to the website and check it out, called Reclaiming Jesus. And we did a declaration, a number of us elders, you might say, elders because we're old, we did this, this video called Reclaiming Jesus and this declaration. It said 5 million people respond so far, 5 million people. And many of them are, are, are young people. 
they're not just becoming secularized. They want to reclaim Jesus, but not in a uh, conservative, political, cultural way. They want to go back to what Jesus said. So to me, that's in the church where I my, 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 my wife, Joy, and our two teenage boys go was is is in dc a former sojourner staff person it's all 20 somethings except for for me and joy you know and growing and it's very uh very much jesus-centered bible-centered but it's the most one of the most multiracial congregations in the city uh and racial justice and we're doing housing uh all kind of stuff's going on and that's a future that defies the politics of left and right so how do we, how do we, again, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. And as a Christian, for, for me, it means going back to what Jesus said. And my, my Jewish friends and my Muslim friends often like to see Christians go back to Jesus. They feel safer if Christians go back to Jesus than they would otherwise. So uh, I think, you know, that's the question I'm raising in my new book coming out next fall, uh, Christ in Crisis, we white evangelicals have put Christianity in crisis. We've been more cultural, more American, more white, more nationalistic than Christian. And so how to get back to Jesus, how to get back to, to the, 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 the truth of Muslim faith, uh, how to get back to the truth of Judaism, how to get back to the truth of your faith, or even if you're a person of not religious faith, but of but of deep moral conscience. And I, I have, you know, in, in struggles around, around the world, I put my life in the hands of people who weren't religious, but who were fighting for the same values I was. And I think going back to the moral questions is where what will save our politics. So do you think from these studies, it's showing that, you know, going back to the traditional beliefs seems to work in keeping and garnering more practicing uh, Christians practicing individuals. It depends what we mean by traditional beliefs. Um, we mean going back to what Jesus said and taught. Really, that he really meant that. Uh, yes, that's a good, a good thing. It means going back to what the Bible says and not what uh, your political party says or your your uh, dominant culture says. Uh, but it's not going back to to go back to a a right wing political ideology. And call that traditional beliefs. I'm saying that's not traditional beliefs. I'm saying the problem with white evangelicals is that they're not evangelicals when they're more white than evangelical. So how do we go back to, in fact, what it really means to be evangelical, to bring good news to the poor, which is what Jesus said it meant. How do we go, go back to a gospel of reconciliation where racial reconciliation was at the heart of the earliest messages of the church of Jesus Christ at the heart. So going back to Jesus and the disciples is where I want to go. From that, I'm curious about your worldview, your personal worldview. So I want to ask you about relativism. In my understanding, relativism is a worldview that uncritically accepts all points of use as equally correct, and that none can be right or wrong, because it asserts that there's no absolute standard by which any point of view can be judged wrong. What's your view on relativism? Well, I, I'm not a relativist. <laughs> um, uh, Micah says, um, instructs us to, uh, to, to do justice, uh, love kindness, and to walk humbly. So with all of the truth uh, tellers and all the violence they do on behalf of their truth telling, I don't. I think walking humbly is a good thing for humans to do, particularly in the religious world. But I, I'm, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, you asked about the word evangelical at the beginning, which is a tough word to hang on to. Uh, Christian is even a hard thing to hang on to because of what Christians have often done. Uh, so, follower of Jesus is where I am, which means I don't have all the answers. Uh, I want to follow. Jesus as best I can. What did he say? What did he do? What did he mean? And I, and Jesus talked about, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth is in that gospel that he preached. So I want to go back to that, but I want to be uh, in a frail and fallen and, and divided world. I want to be humble 
and not think that I always have all the answers, but I'm not a relativist. I follow Jesus, and that's my notion of what is uh, the truth that will set me free. Do you think, how do you think it's, how do you think relativism is impacting the world today, though? Are there dangers of it? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think people, people uh, often respond to, uh, uh, you know, the stark and often arrogant and even violent uh, assertion of what people say is right or wrong or truth or whatever. And so they say, wait, I don't want to be part of that. And I understand that. But I think, I think we need to have uh, a moral compass in a world like this. All of us do. What is our moral compass? What is, what is faith for you? What is, what is morality for you? What is, where do you find your direction? And I think a crisis like we're in now really, um, uh, can be redemptive if it if it makes us go deeper, and I'll say that in three ways. If it makes us go deeper, right now we're so polarized. So let's so blaming each other instead of solving problems, attacking each other instead of finding some common ground for the common good, uh, which I teach at Georgetown all the time in my classes on faith and politics. I'm saying go deeper. Number one, go deeper into whatever it is you call faith. The disciplines, the practices, the prayers, the time, the space. Let's go deeper into our faith. Number two, let's go deeper into our relationships with each other, especially across racial and religious lines. We have to understand each, each other. We have to talk to each other about our hopes and futures and fears for our kids. Uh, as a former Little League baseball coach, you know, I could see where moms and dads talk about the future for their kids. Uh, that's what brings people together. But when 75% of white people in America have not one significant relationship with color in their social circles, we have a problem. So, and three, uh, as Brian Stevenson says, uh, go deeper, or he calls proximity in our relationship to those on the margins, those on the bottom, those on death row, as he has done, those in our poorest neighborhoods. How do we go deeper into our relationship with those whom Jesus says are, he calls the least of these and how we treat them. Jesus says is how we treat him. So deeper into our faith, deeper into our relationships, particularly across racial and religious lines, and then deeper into those, the lives of people who are really vulnerable, most impacted are now targeted uh, by this administration. I believe Speaking of administration, I believe in different capacities, you were a spiritual advisor to both President Barack Obama and George W. Bush. What was that like? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I don't endorse uh, candidates, but I'm happy to talk to candidates or political leaders. I've got a meeting with one this afternoon here on the Hill. Um, and I try to, uh, to, I don't want to be a chaplain. I don't want to be a, party loyalist, I want to raise hard questions. And so I, I did. Uh, Barack Obama was the only friend I ever had that became president. I've become friends with people after they became president. But we, uh, but we talked and had a honest, ongoing, sometimes a rigorous conversation over eight years. Uh, with George W. Bush, we talked a lot, about, a lot about poverty and about what that meant and what he needed to do. And, and, and I was you know, attacked by some friends on the left for even talking to him. But when I came out against the war in, in Iraq, um, that cut off the relationship with President uh, Bush. But we've met now since, and, and um, I think the war in Iraq was wrong, and I said that from the beginning. So you can't let your relationship with political power change what you think about things. Uh, you can, it's sort of a, every social movement has a, uh, I call it the outside-inside dance. Uh, King had a movement on the outside, but he talked to people on the, on the inside. And I remember uh, the f first time I was going to see Barack Obama as president in the White House in his Oval Office. The first time I'd seen him before, and we talked a lot and emailed back and forth over the years. First time I went to see him in the Oval Office, I couldn't get through Secret Service. <laughs> because I've been arrested so many times outside in the way, way, way out sidewalk. So they had to call the Oval Office and they said, no, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay. And they had to send someone down to escort me in. So it made me think about that. And 
where are you being arrested outside the White House or talking to somebody on the, on the inside are two ways to speak to your conscience and the truth you believe in. But I, in some ways, I think it's it's often a little clearer and easier when you're outside. It's harder sometimes when you're on the inside. So, but I think the prophetic tradition and our all of our traditions has that outside in, 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 inside dance. So, so uh, you can be on the inside, you can be on the outside, you can go both ways. But you have to be faithful to what you think is true, no matter where you're speaking. And I think uh, that's why I'll talk. I'm I'm talking to some of the candidates now. Uh, and I'll keep doing that, but I'm also going to try to make sure that my uh, my base is not the inside of power, but outside of power in in the movements of ordinary people. You were also a member of President Obama's inaugural Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. Could you speak about your experience there and how you were able to help increase more faith-based alliances? Well, um, there have been this idea of uh, faith-based or partnerships between, uh, you know, governments and agencies with faith-based organizations that actually began in the Clinton administration uh, at HUD when Andrew Cuomo was there, and uh, Joe Hakala was a Jesuit friend of mine who was who headed up the first faith-based office, I think, uh, in the government at HUD under Clinton with Andrew Cuomo. So I went and spoke to them, spoke to him. I did his prayer breakfast, actually, last year as governor of New York. Uh, but then George Bush made a big part of his campaign, and Joshua Dubois, who was in the Obama administration, made a big part of Obama's presidency as well. So uh, so trying to get uh, governmental agencies to work with faith-based partners on the ground is really a good idea, because often the faith-based partners, uh, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, are, are doing work on the ground that is closest to the people, that hears the people, that has the people in their in their lives, and their, and so how to build partnerships, public, private, and nonprofit, is a good thing. So trying to make that work on behalf of the poor is something that's I think worth doing. But also then to raise the hard questions, the prophetic questions about policy. You can't just you can't just keep pulling bodies out of the river, and not go upstream to see water who's throwing them in. So you can't just talk about serving people. You've got to talk about why do people need to be served. Um, so you have to talk about policy as, as well as service. I want to talk about faith. I think we echoed a little bit about this in the past, but what do you feel are the top two or three major challenges the world in general faces in terms of religion and spirituality, whether it be institutional, social, societal, intellectual, educational, and any other areas? Well, um, <clears throat> I think... Um, we, my wife Joy uh, and I, just took our twenty-five-year-old, twenty-five teenage boys from Wilson High School to the Dominican Republic for their baseball spring training. We've done this with both of our sons on the Wilson High School baseball team. The DR has twenty percent of the major league baseball players. Amazing baseball country, but also it's a poor country. It's where Joe Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's grandson had his life changed, who's now on Capitol Hill. Um, and it was a service trip and a baseball training trip. And uh, uh, we support, uh, you know, the baseball program and players support an orphanage, especially its kids, and elderly care place for old people on their own, support young girls who are going to medical school to practice in the Dominican. Uh, and, and we work with these young kids and Dominican coaches. And I saw our kids making a deep connection with those Dominican special needs kids, the elderly, and the baseball players they played with and ran clinics for, the young ones, every every year. And I said, I saw you make a real connection with those kids. But you know what? Uh, a day, uh, an afternoon, a week is not enough. You can see how divided our world is, what you've just seen, poverty like they have never seen before. And now what you're going back to, the most affluent country in the world. So a week isn't enough. How do you change your lives, your studies, your majors, uh, your careers, to, to help heal a divided world? Healing a divided world uh, 
uh, a polarized world is central to faith. I think uh, stewarding this planet is central to our faith. Climate change, uh, climate justice, critical for all of us now. Uh, and I think uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. That's a kind of a special term. So in a world full of conflict, those who just aren't against war, but are trying to not just love peace, but make peace. Uh, those who are the conflict resolvers. And I was really struck by the new Pope when he chose the name Francis, Pope Francis. It's because of those three things, uh, the poor, uh, peace, and the planet. <laughs> those were Francis' three things. How do, you, how do you include the poor? How do you make peace? And how do you steward the planet? Those are key things that even uh, the new Pope saw and Francis and Francis saw in the gospel and I see today. From the perspective of search, and this is a personal question, what would be a question, even a faith-related question, that you are still searching for a satisfying answer to and for which you would even welcome other perspectives? Well, there, you know, there always are um, lots of those questions. Uh, uh, you know, the, the book of Corinthians says we often see through a glass darkly. We don't see the whole thing. Um, so I, 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 that's why humility is so important here. Lots of things. I always, I'm, <coughs> I'm now uh, seven years old and I don't have all the answers to things. And I want to keep talking with uh, my, my colleagues, my brothers and sisters, particularly across racial cultural lines and particularly across generational lines. I've got a very young staff and, and they have a new, there's a new generation perspective that I need to hear all the time. So what do I, what do they see and how does that help me see what I see? So that's the word sojourners, you know, the name of our organization and it means a pilgrimage. It means we're on a journey. It doesn't mean we've reached the end of a, of a journey. We're on a journey. We don't have all the answers. We're, we're, the destination is always ahead of us. So I, you know, I, I love to be in, a, in uh, conversations. Uh, during my talks, I love the Q&A time. <laughs> after those, I'm usually talking with people afterwards late into the night. Um, so that's what I like to do. I like to put forward what I think and hear and then go back and forth and, and see how a new generation in particular is going to find new solutions to our problems. I want to talk about the future and specifically your vision for the future. This is a little deep, but what would be a vision you have that the world can achieve, let's say in 25 years? And then any insights or suggestions would you give to help them achieve this vision? Abraham Lincoln, uh, in his first inaugural, called us, and I would think called, was calling leaders <clears throat> to our better angels better angels. Um, and I think we are facing a president now calling us to our um, deepest demons. So this is really a kind of spiritual warfare going on. This isn't just politics between our angels and our demons. Uh, there is the best of America. There is the worst of America. We've seen some of the best uh, in our history and movements for justice and change and uh, to make ourselves a more perfect union, as some would say. But we've seen our worst uh, in, uh, in Charlottesville and Charlotte and Pittsburgh and now Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, and so how that battle will take place is now before us. So we're in a battle between our angels and our demons. Uh, I'm not sure which way it'll go, um, but I think that's what's at stake now. It's really a kind of spiritual warfare. But I think um, um, some of the things I, I see a new generation wanting, which is that our, our, our diversity, our, uh, that we are who, who we are, and we are the best of who we are when we are all of who we are. I think that our racial... Reconciliation is rooted in racial justice. And so to me, that's central for our work going forward. Um, 
uh, I think um, uh, the the planet, my young boys, teenage boys, uh, see that as as a vital question for them. That as well. They because they're baseball players and their teammates are always their best friends, and uh, their teammates are very diverse. That's the future they want, and they want to see this planet be protected. Um, and that means that we got to take care of each other. So, um, um, you, you know, good health is not a, a commodity. You shouldn't be healthy because you're wealthy. Uh, you should be healthy because you're human and you have a right to health care. So basic fundamental rights like that are important to fight for. Uh, fighting for them together across all of our boundaries and lines. And I think uh, protecting the planet is very central to all that we do. And I think in all this, it's really a matter of um, how do we, I, th- I think the hunger, the hunger for justice and the hunger for spirituality are, are both real and are deeply connected. And when they're, when they're, when they're connected, when they're deeply connected, we're, 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 we're a lot healthier. Uh, the hunger for spirituality apart from the hunger for justice can make us, uh, can privatize us and make us narcissistic and all we care about is our own soul and well-being and to, to God or the higher powers without caring about each other and the planet. The hunger for justice, uh, in, particularly in the midst of, of, of injustice and inequality and hopelessness and violence, can burn us out can burn us out unless we have a real root have roots in our spiritual to sustain it. What sustains us in this uh, sojourn uh, to a bad, better world. So spirituality and politics, if you know, spiritual injustice are the things that I, I want to see integrated. And that's what we try and do at sojourners since we've done for now 50 years and we've got a next 50 ahead of us with a whole bunch of new young leaders. And I'm looking forward to that. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. Bless you for this time. I liked it. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.